Refresh has a, a, I guess what would be termed a, a, a comprehensive, maybe intricate approach towards symbolism in, in Jewish life. And as part of his, his symbol, symbolism, uh, he talks about the symbols of history as well and brings down the rainbow and the covenant that, uh, between God and mankind on the rainbow. Is this also an expression of an optimism towards humanity? Is that how Hirsch would place that symbol? Is it okay if I answer the question but move from the rainbow to a different example? Is that right? Absolutely. No, absolutely. Okay, great. So I, I want to answer your question. I just think there's another example that will be more helpful for me okay? because it will combine almost three different themes I want to talk about today. So we already mentioned his interest in symbolism and applying that to the details of mitzvot. We mentioned his optimism. Something we have not mentioned yet is certainly in Judaism, there are different approaches to physicality. And you could have an approach that kind of wants to minimize physicality, a more ascetic approach. And you could have an approach that emphasizes the sanctification of the physical. Okay, and I think it's clear an honest portrayal of rabbinic sources could portray rabbis who are more in one camp and more in the other camp. Rav Hirsch, I think, befitting his optimism, is very firmly in the camp that the physical is not meant to be rejected. It's not meant to be, you know, reduced to an absolute minimum. It's meant to be used well, used in a joyous fashion and a morally appropriate fashion and used as a uh, form of divine service. So let's talk about the classic test case. I think when Jews ask what your approach to physicality is, it almost seems like Nazir is always the go-to example. Because here we have someone who is temporarily renouncing certain things. For example, not partaking of wine for a particular period. And do we view that as an ideal or not? Right? Those that view it as an ideal tend to be a little bit more on the minimize the physicality camp. And those that say, no, no, it's actually a necessary evil, right? It was never the ideal to be an Azir. It's just that that's what some Jews might need at a given point in time. So they tend to be more on the robust appreciation of physicality camp. So again, I wouldn't say this is the only move, but it's often a good test case. If you know what a thinker thinks on this, move to Nazir and you'll get a sense. So Rav Hirsch, of course, is in the second camp. Nazir is not an ideal at all. Nazir is a temporary, necessary evil, as it were. But he does something amazing. This, I'm not aware of anybody else who does. There's a little-known halakha that, even though it's in the psukim, I think we just all miss it. I know like when I discovered it, maybe I was in my 40s already. Okay, the Nazir also doesn't get a haircut. The Nazir grows her hair, or his hair. And at the end, the Nazir cuts the hair. But here's what nobody knows. They use the hair as kind of kindling material for a flame that's going to cook a carbon shlomim. Okay, this again, it's kind of fascinating because you think, oh, this must be like some obscure drusha that teaches you this. It says it black and white in the psukim. Read the psukim in Parsha Nusso. It says you take the hair, you use it to kindle as a fuel, as firewood, as it were, and then you're able to burn and cook the karban shlamin. So Rav Hirsch says, and this is classic Rav Hirsch use of symbolism, again, if I went to the Rambam or the Chinuch Nazir, I imagine they explained the purpose of Nazir. I admit I didn't check, but I would bet neither one explains the specific symbolism of burning the hair under the Karban Shlomim. 
Like that level of detail, most Tamiya Mitzvah people do not get to. But a verse says, ah, that's exactly the whole point. The hair represents the Nazir's abstention, right? The Nazir did not get a haircut. What is unique about a Karban Shlamim? Karban Shlamim is the one Karban that everybody can eat from, right? A Karban Ola, nobody eats from. A Karban Chatad, only the Kohanim, only the priests can eat. And a Karban Shlamim, everybody, like the owners can eat it. You could, uh, everyone who's Tahar could come and eat the Karban Shlamim. So Shlamim would become a symbol of the usage of the physical in religious worship. But I'll go a step further. It's not only that it's allowed to eat the Karban Shlamim, I think a, a deeper understanding would view it as it's part of the religious service. It's part of the religious ritual, right? The Karban Shlamim is meant to be eaten, right? It's not just an option for dinner. So at that point, says the first, look what we've done. We've taken the hair that symbolizes the abstention of the Nazir, and we're using it as a means to prepare the Shlamim, which is the return to physicality. So here, I think our triple themes of reverse come together beautifully. Okay, we have, again, I think the optimism is related. Well, let me just explain that a little. Maybe the, the listeners understand, right? I'm connecting optimism to appreciating physicality because I'm arguing that what would be a more negative view? Physicality can't be redeemed. It's, it's bestial. It's just what humanity shares with the animal kingdom. We could easily imagine the animal kingdom gobbling up lunch. So at that point, it's not really redeemable. Where the optimists would say, no, humanity again, we could do it. Even though there's something perhaps, I don't know, animalistic about physicality. But it's different when you and me does it. We do it in a different way. We do it with restraint. We do it with refinement. So I'm saying the optimism leads to a more positive thinking about physicality. And then you have reverse again, using the symbolism of Tamiya Mitzvahs beautifully, right? That is manifest in the hair uh, servicing the Shlamim. So again, uh, I apologize. I didn't answer the rainbow example, but uh-huh. just the, the Nazir example just uh, spoke to my purposes so beautifully. I, I had to go with it. Okay, excellent. Uh, we have this uh, concept of halacha Esav Soned Yaakov, that Esav, Esau, hates his brother Jacob, Yaakov. Um, yet when we read of the encounter between Esav and Yaakov, between Esau and Jacob, a famous encounter, Rav Hirsch ha- has an interesting, I think, interpretation in which the love that Esau seems to have for, for Jacob, or other commentaries say that really well, it was crocodile tears, wasn't that real. Um, Reverse says no, it, it's, it's clearly real, and it perhaps speaks of uh, an era and a time or a potential. Uh, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and Antoninus, Judah the Prince and, and the Roman Emperor Antoninus, um, who was perhaps Marcus Aurelius. And, and, and so th- there seems to be like this optimism about how the Jewish people can work with the non-Jewish world. Is that a fair understanding of that episode? Oh, absolutely. I should say your love of history is coming through here. You snuck in a Marcus Aurelius reference. Okay, very good. But um, I'm very glad you asked that, actually, because I think it points to an important point. You're certainly right that we do have commentaries that are much more negative about Esau. And Chazal tend to be fairly negative about Esau. 
But I think it's a mistake sometimes to get caught up in one source and that source somehow becomes the definitive and totality of Jewish thought. You're right, there is a chazal, but halacha, esav, soni, et yaakov. But there are other sources with very varied tradition. And before I even get to Rav Hirsch, I'll just point out, um, when Yaakov is waiting for Esav, notice Yaakov himself doesn't know what Esav's thinking, right? We have him preparing for different modes. Is it going to be war? Is it not going to be war? He's not sure. When Esav actually comes, uh, Esav comes and, of course, embraces Yaakov. So what's happening there? So I'm going to do, you know, two extremes in the middle. One extreme would be, again, we'll go with the most negative view first. Asab just wants to attack, and we'll go with the Midrashic view. He even tries to bite Yaakov, but, you know, mir- miracle occurs, and he is unable to harm Yaakov. That would be, obviously, the most negative portrayal of where Asab's coming from. On the other side, by the way, even looking at Rishonim, I think it's in the Rashbam, if I remember correctly. It's either Rashbam or Sforno, one of them. Some commentaries think that Yaakov misread it. He was never coming to attack, actually. The 400 man was just like Esau's entourage. He's an important fellow. And it wasn't an attack from the get-go. Yes, that would be the other extreme. There is a middle position uh, which states that Esau came to attack, but when he saw Yaakov, he had a change of heart. And he was not trying to attack when he embraced him. That was authentic. So I would say, to some degree, even the middle position perhaps shines a more positive light on Asa. Maybe even uh, the most positive light, where you're saying that here's someone who waited years to get his revenge and came with an army where he was capable of inflicting damage, and yet chose at the last minute to uh, to reconcile. So I think we do have a strong sense of other possibilities. And now to pick up on your point, Rav Hirsch is someone who tends to be more positive about the non-Jewish world. Okay, uh, maybe we'll discuss this. Obviously, him experiencing emancipation in the 1800s could be playing a role. At the same time, I think it does, again, fit his optimism. Right? If one is going to be optimistic about humanity, maybe it's not just Jewish humanity. Maybe your optimism will go to the entire world, and Rav Hirsch will look around and see that non-Jews are also capable of ethically refined behavior. And he'll plug that into Chumash as well. Instead of seeing every non-Jew as a bad guy, they're much more complex. So I, again, I would say first does have a more positive take on the non-Jewish world, and that does very much tie in with his optimism. If we're talking about the optimism regarding uh, mankind in general, not just the Jewish people, and specifically the relationship between the Jewish people and the rest of humanity, is that optimism something that Hirsch embraces as well? Uh, Absolutely. I would say there's a dual aspect here that I think really does go together. One is how I think about the non-Jews as people. The other is how I think about non-Jewish wisdom. Now, I admit one could try to split between the two, but I think logically it pretty much goes together. Like, if I think of this great gap that Jews are these this noble race and the non-Jews are pretty much, you know... uh, Nothing good could be said about them. So, A, that'll impact how I relate to them. And B, why should I think that they might have a wisdom that is beneficial, a wisdom that could help me? Conversely, if I think of them as, you know, spiritually and ethically uh, people of potential, so why wouldn't their ideas, in theory, be something that I could learn from? If you're really curious about this, uh, 
Mark Shapiro, thank God, knows German. So in one of the volumes of the Torah Mata Journal, he translated uh, a dedication to the German poet Schiller that reverse wrote, said, reverse delivered. Uh, not too many famous rabbis in our tradition uh, delivered beans to, uh, you know, Gentile poets. But it's, it's a pretty powerful piece. So I think we've already seen like a lot of manifestations of versus optimism. I would say A, a rejection of original sin, corrupt humanity. B, a robust appreciation for how the physical could be used for serving God. And now we have like a C and D, a more positive approach to the non-Jewish world that is both manifest in uh, simply how one writes about non-Jews, as in your ace of example, and in his Torah and Derek Eretz philosophy of learning from the non-Jews. So I think uh, we've had a lot of themes here, but I do think they all connect to Reverse's optimism. The, the Jewish imperative to serve God with, with joy, uh, is this a theme that Rav Hirsch brings up? And is that reflective of an inherent optimism towards humanity? Okay, great. Uh, so I'm going to use another example that's one of my favorite Rav Hirsch examples and ask a question that I think doesn't get asked that often, but leads to an interesting result. If we divided the sacrificial order into three main offerings, as we said before, the Ola, the Chata, and the Shlomim. Is one of them somehow the quintessential offering? Now, it could be you could say that's a silly question. Why does one have to be quintessential? But for the sake of argument, let's ask it. So when one looks at the Ramban on Karbonot, the Ramban, he never takes a stand on the question I just raised. But when he explains Karbonot in Vayikra, Parak Aleph, Pasuk Tet, he talks about Man feels sinful. We feel like really we're deserving of being on the altar. And the carbon is a substitute. Like God is gracious and therefore we are able to burn the carbon and we remain alive. So without getting into too much discussion, clearly what's the Ramban's focus in the world of the sacrificial order? Sinful humanity. Right? So it's almost like the chat that becomes the paradigmatic carbon to some degree. Rav Hirsch in Perik and Pasuk Chavdalad of Vayikra is very adamant that that's not the case. Rav Hirsch wants to say that the Ola is the paradigmatic carbon. Now, before I bring some of his proofs for that, I'll just point out that Ola is actually interesting for the following reason. Okay, I hope I have time for this. Chata, is that, is that are we okay timing? We're, we're fine. Great. Chata is extremely sin-related. Shlomim, on the other hand, I'm not aware of any source that connects a carbon shlomim with sin. Ola is kind of a, uh, it's like the swing vote of the election. Because it's not a one-to-one correspondence like a chata. I say it and I bring a carbon ola. But the Pasuk does say the phrase, v'nirtsalo l'chaper alav. So the word atonement does appear in an Ola context. So it's not so clear how essential the atoning element is to the identity of an Ola. So Rav Hirsch argues very vociferously that it's not so essential. It's not like a chata. Ola is mostly about striving for spiritual greatness. It's not mostly about atoning for sin. And then he says, and I'll prove to you that an Ola is the main karban. And some of the proofs are actually pretty interesting. Arguably, what defines the sacrifice order? The carbon tummy. The carbon I bring every day. Of course, what is the carbon tamid? It's an ola. It is not a chata. 
right? The Mizbeach upon which we bring offerings, right, is called the Mizbeach HaOla, right? Not the Mizbeach HaChata. So one could look there and see some more arguments, but Rav Hirsch is very insistent that an Ola really is the defining carbon. Once again, Judaism's posture for Rav Hirsch is not, oh, it's sinful man. It's depressed man. That is not Judaism's posture. It is more joyful, optimistic man striving for greatness. And just use one other example as well, beyond Korbanot, Rav Hirsch is very into the mitzvah of Maser Shani. Why does he like Maser Shani so much? So Maser Shani is great for him, because what do I do with Maser Shani? The Pasuk says both Vachalta and Vesamachta. So you get a sense of eating as a form of Avodah Hashem, of serving God, and joy as a form of Avodah Hashem. In some ways, you know, it's kind of a funny thing to say. I want to say that is Rav Hirsch's favorite tithe. Because it's one thing to, you know, oh, I give it to the Kohen, or I give it to the Levi, or I give it to the Ani. Obviously, it's great to support the needy. But for a verse, Master Shani has a unique aspect. Okay, I often think it's interesting that it's a tithe. It's, it's so different than the others. I actually eat it myself, but I bring it to Shalayim, and I remain Tahar, and I partake of Master Shani in a joyous fashion. So I think for a verse, again, it all ties together. Right, I am uh, optimistic about humanity. I can redeem physicality, and joy goes together with that too. So maybe now this is great. I never made it a list of five. Maybe it's like our fifth theme. Okay, theme five would be joy. Right, joy is not something. Again, you can easily view a religious person who thinks you know uh, joy is inappropriate. Joy is not what a dignified religious person does. It's too too wild. But for a verse, that's not true. Right, the appropriate kind of joy is very much what it means to be a religious person. How would you succinctly, because I know it's, it's a deep concept, um, define Torah in Derech Eretz versus Torah in Derech Eretz? And how does that tie in, which you've mentioned a little bit too, is optimism? Okay. Um, maybe I'll talk personally for a second, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I don't know if Rav uh, would agree with my inner feelings. Okay. But I'll toss it out there. I, I hope he would. When people ask me about this old debate about, you know, do we encounter secular knowledge or do we not? For me, it's almost that, I'll say a little funny way, like I almost like feel like I don't have a choice. I'll tell you what I mean. Obviously, I have a choice. I find Torah very profound. It's one of the reasons I enjoy it every day, Talmud Torah. I also find a lot of secular writing to be particularly profound. Right. I feel like I've gotten so much insight into the world from non-Jewish writers. There's been a lot of intelligent non-Jewish writers over the course of time. And their ideas are often insightful and inspiring. You know, I'll just toss out one recent example. Just maybe the listeners will want to read this book. Okay, so there's a medical writer named Atul Gawande who wrote a book called Being Mortal. And it's about how, you know, we're obviously living longer now due to medical advances. And it becomes a question, like, what, the, what is the end of our life going to look like? Right? Uh, it's a real question. Those of us who are perhaps taking care of elderly parents might, uh, you know, face, be facing this question. And I just found it such a sympathetic and wise book about these issues. Like, we'll discuss things like, um, where does one die? Meaning, I think often in the Western world, one dies in a hospital. And often in the third world, the assumption is you die at home. And maybe, I don't know, the Western world is getting something wrong about this. Like, we're kind of like outsourcing death to the medical authorities. Okay, so again, obviously, this is its own conversation. But I read that book, and I, I like 
I was like, oh my God, like everybody should read this book. This is, this is amazing. So for me, uh, again, you might say, would I have a more negative view or more join this view of the world? I would not come to that. But I think if one reads with an open mind, uh, one does find a lot of wisdom and insight. And that could either be the product of optimism or that could generate optimism. Oh, if there really is such insight there, that's, uh, that generates it for me. So I think, again, now I'm sorry to jump from, you know, Yitzhak Blatter or Hirsch, but maybe Hirsch had that experience. You know, German Jewry in the 1800s was getting more rights than they'd had in the past, right, with Emancipation Enlightenment. And Rav Hirsch was now reading these people. And what if he read, you know, Goethe and Schiller and said, this is amazing, right? I find very inspiring things here, things that do not contradict, right, my most deep Jewish values. And that both optimism leads me there, and it also generates optimism. So maybe something similar happened in, uh, in Rav Hirsch's biography. So, so how would then, Rabbi, Rabbi Lau, how would you define... Torah im derech Eretz. It goes way beyond, if I'm understanding correctly, we combine Torah with livelihood. Uh, much more than livelihood. And some, I get the impression that someone in Torah im derech Eretz says, we need to have a livelihood, but not a value to anything that comes from a non-Torah source. Okay, you, your, your impression is absolutely true. And they even say that Unfortunately, Rev Hirsch has been uh, subject to a bit of revisionism on this topic. Okay, I think you're right. One of the interesting things that happened, it shows you how sometimes it's hard to maintain your identity when you switch countries. Okay, so I don't know if you've, uh, actually you didn't spend time in New York, so maybe you know this community. So Rev Hirsch's community ultimately moved to Washington Heights in northern Manhattan, known as the Breuer's community. And um, to a great degree, They've, I would say, maintained the minhagim of Rav Hirsch, but haven't really maintained the worldview of Rav Hirsch. Meaning if one went there, one would still find that, that no, you wait three, three hours between meat and milk, right? Things like that you would find. Uh, but you would not find so much this kind of appreciation for non-Jewish literature. And you're right, one move has been to kind of make term their hair. It's more about having a livelihood. I think that you still will get. That maybe in the Breuer's community, there won't be the sense that you should be in Kolel till 50. There will be the sense of getting a job. And maybe you do go to college so that you could have a profession. So you'll become an accountant, as the case may be. Uh, but then there'd be no sense, this very, as, as you're really alluding to, there's a big difference between you know, practically studying accounting so I could support my family, although that's certainly a good thing. And, you know, reading Schiller because his poetry is going to inspire me spiritually. That is hardly the same thing. And I think you're right, where those uh, revisionists of Hirsch would like to kind of limit him to the accounting model. I think an honest reading of Rav Hirsch, I think the sources are black and white, uh, really point to the other model, that it's not only an ability to support your family, but a genuine appreciation for the ideas of Gentile thinkers. You had mentioned that Rav Hirsch lived in tumultuous times. It was... Um... 1848, the revolutions that swept across Europe and how that might have impacted how he looked at the world and his optimism regarding mankind. Now, if we can go to our era and a post-Holocaust, post-Shoah, that obviously 
initiated and was started in Germany, in Hirsch's Germany. How, how do you think, based on the sources of Hirsch, I know it's a what if, how do you place that now, given where we are now in history? Okay, so that's a great question. And as you say, there is a speculative aspect. So I can't give a definitive answer. But maybe within the world of speculation, there are two things to be said. It is true that maybe the 20th century might have dampened some of Hirsch's optimism. Okay, there's no question that when Jews were like freed from the ghetto and had the sense of equal rights, so that was a very you know enthusiastic time for what it meant to be a Jew and the nature of uh, Jewish Gentile relations. And there's no question that the horrors of the Holocaust could certainly shake up one's optimism about that interaction. So I admit that in theory, Rav Hirsch might, you know, somewhat strike a different tone. But the one thing I'll say, I think you have to be careful about, which is our assumptions about how someone might react to a given situation. It's amazing how humanity is much more complex than that. And I'll give you two interesting examples. Um, I was once giving sheer about Rav Cook and Rav Salvechik. And not Rav Hirsch, but I was saying how Rav Cook was a more optimistic person than Rav Salvechik. Rav Salvechik is a lot about tension and conflict, and Rav Cook is less about that. And someone said, oh, it's obvious because Rav Cook had an easy life and Rav Salvechik had a hard life. And I sat there thinking for a second. I said, but that's just not true, actually. You know, Rav Cook had a lot of difficulty in his life. If I recall correctly, I think he lost a child. Uh, when he came to Israel, like the zealots made his life crazy. They would like put up signs against him all the time. Uh, one can hardly say, it's not obvious to me that Rav Soloveitchik had a much more profoundly difficult life than Rav Cook. And maybe it's a little bit, uh, you know, as a historian, this is very relevant to you. Maybe it's a bit reductionist to say it's true that everybody to some degree is a product of their upbringing in their time. But to reduce it to like this mathematical formula, Oh, people who had easy lives are optimists. People who had tough lives are pessimists. Like life's not like that. I guess we, I guess humanity is pretty impressive. We could somehow like think beyond the context that we're born into. So, and I would even go a step further. Again, I cannot speak to what it means to be a Holocaust survivor. I cannot speak to it in the slightest. But I think when we meet them, I, I don't know if you find this, I'm always amazed. Some of them are actually still optimistic about the world. I find it just astounding, right? You think there for sure you'd be a totally a product of your upper, of your history, but right? you must be really cynical and negative if you're a survivor. But actually check out the world. There are survivors who are optimistic people. So again, it is a speculative question and I can't guarantee I know how reverse would respond, but I wouldn't go with this kind of this easy assumption. Now, obviously he would be much more cynical and negative and pessimistic as a result. As I tried to point out, I think uh, humanity is a bit more complex than that. And maybe our first would still, to a great degree, maintain his optimism. I think we can go on and on. And it's, it's a fascinating topic. Uh, any conclus- conclusory uh, remarks, anything in conclusion that you just want to, as, as you leave us in, a, in an upbeat, optimistic mood after the oh. Okay, so uh, maybe I'll just say one thing. Like, I think, obviously, people could disagree, but I think, in general, optimism is, to some degree, uh, a self-perpetuating or a self-creating reality. And in that sense, I think it's often, like, a more helpful approach to life. Now, again, 
if you have an overly rosy optimism, which is waiting to get crushed by reality, that's not helpful. But I think kind of a certain moderate baseline optimism is a good thing. So I hope uh, we're inspired to emulate reverse. I think it leads in good directions. Okay. Again, Rabbi Blau, thank you so much. This has been wonderful and appreciate your time very much. Okay. My pleasure. Thanks for being a good interviewer. Mm-hmm.